Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Greetings, cretins. Good to be back. <laughs> yes, it's good to be back. Good to be good to be live again. Yes, yeah, we haven't Apparently been alive. We weren't, we weren't alive. Now, now we're alive. Yeah. Yes. yes. Thanks to the vagaries of Microsoft, we right. we'll figure that out and we're back on. And the uh, addition of my friend Travis. Uh, telling me something that i should have uh, already checked myself yeah uh, it's good, a good thing you have a computer expert nearby right somebody who uses that. computers yeah I, I i i plead the fifth i refuse to assist in most cases so please don't repeat that right <laughs> that's one thing i hate i hate it when people ask me for like computer help yeah it's like you're a computer guy it's like uh yeah but you know I don't want to help you. Sorry. <laughs> I refuse to be held liable for any future meltdowns. Right. It is not my job. It's somebody else's job. There are people, people hired to do this. People do this for a living. Why don't you engage one of them? Every year, every year around tax time, I get a phone call from my sister asking me how to create a new folder for the new year to put her invoices in. So I have to walk her through creating a folder. <laughs> Can't just uh, tell her to go buy some vanilla folders and stop trying to do it online. Uh, it, uh, it, it amuses me. That's good. It amuses you. Uh, my mother-in-law, who's 96, uh, a few years back, Liz is like, she wants a computer. I'm like, well, I'll tell you what, I will give her a computer. She doesn't need to buy one. I'll give her one. However, she can never ask me any questions about computers or using computers, any of that. I don't want to ever hear a question from her on this. I said, you will have to be the IT person that she goes to. And it's, it's like, call. Actually, yeah. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to speak ill of the woman, but the number of calls Liz gets about, you know, the TV doesn't work. It's like, well, did you push the button on the remote? Yeah, it doesn't work. You know, and Liz left to drive down there and push the button on the remote. And sure enough, it works. I like, don't know why, but you know, when you're 96, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you've seen a lot of technological change. Yes. So, uh, you know, and, we make we we jest about this, but uh, you know the day is going to come where at least I I don't know about you guys, but I'm yeah. going to be that one that's like I don't understand how this works. I can't I can't make this work. I'm going to be calling my daughters to help me right, with some right. piece of technology. There's going to be something new, some you know plasma based anti gravity something you know, and I'm going yeah. like, how Holograms, do I yeah. yeah, there's going to be like just turn the knob, you know, do this. And yeah, I won't be able to get the holograms to work, you know, talk to them. I'm like, you know, I'll have the hologram upside down, you know, it'll be the ba- they'll be looking at the back of my head. They'll be like, dad, dad, turn around. <laughs> They're like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. I am yeah. very curious about what that technology is going to be. I, right. I, am, I am curious about that. Well, it's going to be something that yeah. is, that is so beyond what we know today. Yeah. And our ability to learn is going to slow down, you know, and quickly adapt to this stuff. And we will be you know, completely lost. 
Yeah. That's it's going to be like, no, dad, you, nice you don't put it in your ear. You put it in your nose. And it's like, right. what? what? Look at him. He's putting it in his ear. <laughs> How do I hear? Oh, going to be that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know who I expect would be able to keep up with technology no problem at all, no matter what it is. Who's probably be inventing that technology, at least when it comes to, uh, you know, brewing. Uh, right. right. Our good our, friend, John Blickman. That's right. Our dear friend, John Blickman, he's going to be uh, on the cutting edge for forever. And uh, mm-hmm. that's what he does now. He's making uh, great uh, brewing equipment. Uh, BlickmanEngineering.com. He's been innovating at your brew day for decades. And uh, it's really come up with a lot of cool uh, things. So check them out, BlickmanEngineering.com. If you enjoy the show, he has been paying for this since we started. And uh, you can uh, tell him thanks by sending an email to feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Go straight to John. And uh, you, can, uh, you can tell him what you think and uh, hopefully say something nice. So there you go. Uh, today... Uh, we actually <laughs> going to do another Yakima chief uh, uh, interview, but uh, we already did one a couple of weeks ago. And then, uh, you know, somebody failed to, failed to hit, hit the record button. Somebody screwed up. I don't know who that was. And so uh, <clears throat> we were going to do that today. And then he could call away. So uh, we're going to do some of your, questions that you send in abundance to us mm-hmm. uh making our effort to we're only 50 shows away from catching up on all the questions 50 right a mere 50 but some of those questions you know they're not really questions so right. maybe it's maybe it's 49 shows to catch up uh unfortunately we have travis here to help us today <laughs> that's right well, my default uh, answer is always well if you listen to jamil and john yeah. <laughs> have you listened to the show charlie asks and he's got some crystal malt questions he says uh hi jamel and john i love the show very informative but also extremely entertaining the emphasis i put myself on extremely okay. uh, i have a number of questions regarding uh, crystal malts this might be better suited as a show topic well let us decide that let's see here <clears throat> He is kind of breaking the golden rule of only one question per email. Ah. Simpler, but he's kind of got four, but they're all very tightly related. Uh, what blends of crystal malts do you use in your darker beers, stouts, and porters? What about in lighter beers, such as IPAs, pale ales, and Mertzens? Does blending a lighter crystal and a darker crystal give you a medium love bond crystal? All right. And you already got three questions in the first question. <laughs> This is this is a you know a question foul here. I think there's like seven questions in this thing, eight. Um, all right, let's take that one one bit at a time. What do you use in your darker beers, uh, Travis? Your stouts, uh, right? Various uh, dark roast malts. Uh, some usually some dark chocolate, depending on what it is. I mean, I'm RIS. on the on the crystals. Oh, crystals. Sorry, crystals in my stouts and porters. Very little. I mean, maybe uh Maybe something 40 to 60, just a touch of it, but not so much in the crystal. Thanks for uh, clearing me up on that. Mm-hmm. How about you, John? Do you have yes, dark crystal malt? Uh, I'll, I'll go up to 90, um, but I really don't care for crystal 120 that much. I mean, yeah. I'll put it in like a, a Belgian double, um, something like that. But otherwise, yeah, I'm not a real fan of it. I I'll, I'll use a little of the, the 60 or a 90 in um, a porter or stout just to give some some background sweetness. Right. Um, I When I'm judging beers um, in these categories, I'll often say to the, the entrant that mm-hmm. there's like a third dimension kind of missing from this beer. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm getting the roast, I'm getting some, I'm getting some hop or I'm getting some base malt, but there should be like some background sweetness or another third dimension to really kind of round out this beer. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I use the 40 and 60 most. Right. Yeah. Uh, you can use any, any love of bond really, but um, 
Yeah, uh, I tend to use the darker ones, the 12150 uh, for, you know, Belgian beers where you're looking for kind of that figgy plum, yeah. uh, you know, dark, you know, uh, caramelized uh, type of uh, character. I've used it in stouts as well. I think, you know, 80 Love a Bond. Um, and it depends. If you're doing like a Russian Imperial, you could do more of that darker uh, crystal. Mm-hmm. If you're doing something like, you know, a dry uh, stout, you wouldn't use any crystal at all. So it, right. it varies. And sometimes you can use a little bit of lighter color crystals just to add a, a kind of a, a background. That's what you use in the lighter beers. You'll use, you know, you know, 10 love a bond, maybe 20 yeah. love a bond, um, 10, 20, 40, just to get that right. edge. Yeah. Depending on what you're looking for more, you know, caramel or, you know, just kind of a background. Yeah. Uh, bit of Hun- honey, toffee, caramel. Yeah. It's increasing color. Yeah. Does blending a lighter crystal and darker crystal give you a medium love a bond crystal? What's the answer to that one, Travis? Well, I, I always think of your story about the IPA, I think it was, made in Australia, where he right. showed you his crystal malt. Oh, and yeah, there was the, the, the Joe White uh, chocolate malt. I would say no. It, it doesn't. It, it, they, they took, uh, like, some black malt and some, you know, pale two-row and blended them together and called that chocolate malt. That's, that's not correct. Um, so same thing on crystal malt by, you know, blending 20 and, you know, 80 doesn't give you, uh, you know, 50 or whatever it would be. Right. You, uh, you can do that, but you're going to get the flavors of the 80 and the flavors of the 20, you know, both present in smaller amounts than if you used, you know, something around 50 level bond would give you that 50 level bond flavor in, in a stronger amount. So completely different. You can't really do that. Uh, Let's see here. What are the flavor differences between domestic crystal malts and English crystal malts? And what beer styles do you tend to use each in? John? I I have not done a side-by-side taste. Um, I consider them in general to be more similar than not. Yeah. I, I can't point to a clear difference. How about you, Travis? Well, I, along the lines of what John's saying, it's it's not so clear cut, but I certainly have gone towards using the English in my uh, my IPAs, whereas my black double IPA, I use the American. It's a, I actually had a homebrew shop here that didn't want to sell any of the domestic uh, crystal malts because they thought they were too sharp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they only sold the English crystal malts. Mm-hmm. And whereas the line is, is, is pretty slim, John, you're right. I find that the same thing. And so if I want uh, something biting through my black double IPA, I go with the American. Okay. But for my, my West Coast, I've definitely gone all English. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Travis. I, personally, I, I see a huge difference between them. Okay. Um, a quality British, uh, you know, crystal caramel malt um, has a richer, fuller flavor, sweeter, rounder, Whereas the domestic varieties tend to be um, domestic in the U.S. By the way, yeah, uh, tend to be uh, you know a, a little drier, more one-dimensional. Um, they're good, but mm-hmm. they're good for you know American styles. Um, the British ones are good for American styles too. But if you're trying to uh, create a British beer. You've got to use British malts. There's just no substitute for it. There's such an important part of the flavor. A lot of the British yeasts really favor malt character Mm -hmm. instead of the hop character. And so, you know, it's really exposing that that malt uh, bill, whereas a lot of the American yeasts favor a hop character and bitterness versus malt character. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know neither one is, you know, right or wrong. It's just, that's, that's the way it is. And so I think it's, it's just critical to use the, the, the British crystal malts. If you're trying yeah. to get that flavor, the same thing in Belgian beers, I would I'd lean heavily on the British malts as well. Um, 
just because that's what they tend to use. And that's why, you know, you get some of those flavors versus, uh, and there's also, you know, French and, and Belgian malts as well. German malts. That they yeah. Use. I think that makes sense when you consider that the base, I mean, these crystal malts are coming from the base malt, um, American two row versus, you know, British pale ale malt uh, mm. varieties. So yeah, the fact that the, the British caramels would be crystals would be a little richer, warmer, mm-hmm. probably goes back to the base malt that's being yep. used. Yep. And the growing conditions mm-hmm. you know, where they're grown makes a big difference uh, in the malts. Um, so yeah. Um, for me, you, you've got to um, let's see here. Like his 12th question here, uh, which love bond or sources of crystal malts tend to age better than others. I've heard that domestic crystal 60 uh, oxidizes faster. Now, are we talking about outside, you know, before they're used in brewing or once it's brewed? Well, uh, the perception is that 60 Lobobon crystal or caramel malt uh, tends to go stale faster than uh, other colors. Um, and I don't, I don't know if there's been solid mm-hmm. documented evidence of that. I mean, uh, right. Charlie Vanforth has done some work with crystals and, and uh, foam stability and so on. Mm-hmm. 60 does seem to be the, the bad boy of the bunch, something mm-hmm. about its, its uh, particular Maillard's uh, lend itself to staling faster, but uh, I'm not sure how definitive that is. Well, I've read, I've read uh, similar stuff about that. And uh, I would imagine that it also depends on, the maltster, you know, yeah. because, you know, this is the reason why you get different flavors from different, you know, uh, suppliers of, you know, it's 60 love crystal is not the same across 10 different maltsters. Right. Um, so they, there might be some that are less prone to that. Uh, but, uh, that's one of the malts that gives you that, uh, what people say craft beer or home brew, you know, staling it, mm. it really takes on, gives it that weird caramel, uh, flavor. Once oxidation occurs or staling occurs, it gives it that weird, sweet caramel thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Got anything to add to that one, uh, Travis? Nothing at all. Okay. Uh, are golden naked oats considered a crystal oat? I've heard conflicting info on this. I've only used it in oatmeal stout and what other styles would it be suitable? I believe so. I think they are made in this, in with the techniques of making crystal malt that is, you know, wet stewed, uh, converted in the hull during, during roasting. They're at a 10 low bond, I think. Mm. Uh, so a pretty low crystal, but mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So crystal malts are made, uh, like John's saying, they, they get converted during the, the, uh, the process, the malting process, and then they get brought up to temperature while still wet and it starts to caramelize the sugars that are present and, um, you know, more, uh, darker is, is where all the love bonds come up and, uh, <clears throat> They are still fermentable. At least some of the sugars are fermentable. Uh, it's surprising what will still ferment. Some of these black malts, they actually will ferment. You'd think. I always thought that they were dead, but that's how they uh-huh. make uh, like cinnamar. Uh-huh. You know, black black malt. They uh, you know mash it and uh, you know convert it and uh, <clears throat> ferment it. And they get like a, you know, 0.4% alcohol out of it. And that's why it's Reinheitsgebot uh, compatible, right? I see. Because it's actually just malted, you know, and fermented. It's beer that you're adding. Hmm. So there you go. That's actually why. Then that's why these, these multiple still ferment. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, more of your questions right after this. 
Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. We're here with uh, John and I here, our good friend uh, Travis Comble, who's an uh, award winning uh, brewer out of. Houston, Texas. How's things yes. in Houston? Sweaty? Uh, it's surprisingly uh, cooler lately. Um, 70s a day, all day so far. Oh, nice. Is that the humidity or the temperature? Probably both. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, let's see here. Uh, Sean asks... Uh, He's got a rising pH post-ferment problem. He says, I have a weird uh, situation. I made a pale ale with the following stats. And he gives us a, a chart of uh, all his uh, numbers here. He says, I am very confused as to why the pH has arisen from 4.44, which is still rather high, to 5.57. I don't think this is... Op- uh, Lysa says, I uh, take very good care of my yeast, oxygenate, use servomyces, etc. I'm very confused. Thanks, Sean. Oh, um, did he say whether it was dry hopped? Yeah, I thought that too. Right. He did not. But there is the, the, the potential issue here. I'm going to. Hmm. So what I noticed is a couple of things. The. Um, the timeline where it starts to <clears throat> where the pH increases is um, about nine days out and it reaches its peak at uh, 11 days out. The temperature it's sitting at is uh, 73 degrees, a peak of 73 degrees at that time, 73 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, 22.7 C is pretty high. I mean, the beer was finished probably, let's see here, where's the terminal gravity? Terminal gravity was 16. Uh, yeah, it was 16, and it was, um, you know, around seven oh. days or so. So, one of the things is, it's attenuated completely. Especially if you're running kind of hot. Um, well, and he also sent a follow-up uh, email that said uh, the yeast was uh, the American Ale Blend 0060. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think it's I think it, I think the yeast are just either it's one of two things. Either he uh, um, dry hopped it considerably, then that gave him this pH bump. Or two, the yeast is dying and just barfing up a bunch. Yeah. I tend towards the latter in this case, although his pH is quite high. Yeah. It started at five, which isn't too bad, mm-hmm. but it never really dropped. Yeah. I mean, it got down to 444. Um, that's not terrible, but you know, I would have thought starting at five, he should get down to about four, two, maybe potentially. Yeah. It's, um, 
And he, he said in a follow-up email that he had, there was no dry hops in this. Oh, so, yeah. So it, it should be, it probably is all yeast related. That's got um, Yeah. Low attenuation going from 55 to 16 to 16. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, expect it to be down more like 10. Um, so yeah, I'm, it probably is yeast, yeast related problems. Is it possible? Crazy yeah, go ahead. My crazy theory. I mean, you guys can tell me how crazy it is. So I, I was reading up on, on 060. Uh, it, it's got some sulfur compounds to it. If the yeast cleaned up the sulfur, which this yeast doesn't look like it cleaned up much, could the pH rise as the sulfur's pulled out? How nuts and complex is that? I wouldn't expect it to. Okay. Um, sulf- sulfur, unless it's sulfuric, um, usually doesn't contribute to pH. Yeah, plus at 1016, you're not sure how much this cleaned up anyway. Yeah. Oh. Here, here's, here's another question. Could it be that there was still considerable buffering to the to the to the water in the uh, in the beer into the into the wort that was produced? Could there be, Could be you know considerable buffering, which is why it never really dropped like it should have, and then so a high alkalinity water I, that and as you know maybe the CO two has left. Maybe there's a lot of some agitation that occurred and we've lost CO2 from the fermenter. I mean, plus the high temperature, you're going to have less CO2 in there. And maybe the CO2 degassing has allowed the pH to rise. Usually the pH, I mean, usually this carbonation only counts for about 0.05 pH unit. Um, I think I disagree. Oh, uh, uh, do you remember our uh, our uh, Australian friend uh, who's uh, the the brewery consultant out in? Oh yeah, yeah, yep. He was sending me pictures of degassed beers and their pH. I think wasn't he? Was that what he sent me? I, <laughs> God, my mind's terrible. And I think there was like you know a point three difference, or I mean it was huge. Um, hmm. Maybe I can log into my email and pull this. <laughs> Let's see. Um, it's a solid point up, right? Yeah. It went from four back up to five, which is hundred times what I'm talking okay. about. So when he first sent this to me, I'm like, no, nah, it can't, can't be that much. And, or he was, he was, no, he was checking, um, you know, commercial beer pHs. Mm-hmm. And, and the preference people had for different pHs. And it was shocking what the pHs were. Um, so a lot of them were um, extremely low. You know, they were in the threes. Okay. For some sours and stuff or pseudo yeah. sours? Yeah. Huh. No, they weren't. And I was asking them, I'm like, hey, did you decarb these? And then I think we had a discussion about the level of carbonation and what that, how, what kind of change that was. So you may be right. Maybe it's uh, 0.05. I don't know. I wouldn't think it would be very much. Yeah. That's all right. B52 brewing. Hope you like Sabro. Oh, nice. Well, we'll see. I definitely get the coconut in this one. Is it supposed to be hazy? Um, Matt would imagine. It just says double dry hopped India pale ale. And those guys don't dislike me yet, so I shouldn't make any negative comments, but I like the beer <laughs> enough to send it to you. Are they an East Coast brewery, Travis, or Texas? Houston. Oh, yeah, okay. 52 is uh, Conroe, I think, a little north of me. Okay. Well, Houston, that's east. So, huh. <laughs> from you guys, yes, definitely yeah. east. <laughs> <laughs> It's not West Texas, that's for sure. That's right. not West Texas. That's right. I think we sort of kind of answered uh, Sean's uh, question. Mm-hmm. John uh, John Charles asks about the Aroma Show. He says, first of all, thank you for hundreds, thousands of hours of shows. It is it is in the thousands at this point, pretty sure. It's at least, I think we broke a thousand a while ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we did. And uh, we get the time back. 
<laughs> what I could have done with that time of my life. I've been he listening did. for years and my beer has gotten much better due to your shows. I am on uh, the quest for a perfect Hellas. I can usually get the flavor dialed in, but the bready, doughy aroma remains elusive. When I have a fresh, real German Hellas, not the American versions, it ranges from a notable, uh, noticeable bready, doughy to a big, doughy punch in the nose. I keep reading all sorts of things on using things like carapils, step mashes, both in the most recent issue of BYO, and decoction all of which have been deemed useless by the Pope many times. <laughs> useless, I tell you. Goddamn useless. <laughs> uh, I'd love to hear a show on aroma in general and specifically contributors to non-hop aroma, toasty, bready, doughy, biscuity, and how to maximize that. Thanks, John. Oh, in case it matters, here's the system. 12 gallons of beer, all grain, no sparge, insulated mash tun, able to recirculate wort through a Blickman electric kettle to step mash, full wort boil, whirlpool with thermometer to get to 44 degrees in 30 to 45 minutes, ferment two carboys, temp control via the side of the carboys in a chest freezer. Starter on a stir plate using the Jamel app. Uh, start at, and see... I ain't getting anybody from those. I don't know who's doing those apps now. Yeah. Uh, start at uh, 44 to 46, free rise to 50, hold for five plus days, then free rise to 60, 62, and hold. Then keg, cool, and CO2 carbonate. Have used White Labs 830, 833, and 838. Okay. But no, no indication of baseball. <laughs> right. That was the thing I noticed. It's like, well... You know, are you using like a domestic uh, Pilsner or are you using like a continental one? That's the key. Yeah, um, yeah you just don't get the, the big multi bready notes in domestic Turo that you do in the, in the German malts. Right. This is a case of, you know, you, you can pretty much make... Uh, a great Hellas just using Pilsner malt. And it's the kind of Pilsner malt you use, you know, the, the quality, the freshness, and then how you treat it through all the process. Um, and fermentation, you know, fermentation is important too. But it sounds like he's doing all the right stu stuff, except, you know, maybe, maybe the wrong base malt or, I don't know. I mean, I find that you can get too intense a Pilsner character, and sometimes you need to cut it with some domestic two-row. Otherwise, it gets, you know, just over-the-top Pilsner-y, and you start getting a weird kind of candy sweet character. You guys ever do that? I have not. But um, I, I yeah, as much detail as he's given, it wouldn't surprise me if he's using a German Pils malt, so maybe <laughs> try a different German Pils malt or a few different ones. Right. Yeah, he's, he sounds like he's doing everything, you know, to the exact detail. All right. I think this is drinkable. It's got quite a bit of Sabro, but it's got a mint uh, kind of character to it as well. You get that when you're doing... So one of the reasons I'm interested in Sabro is Travis was sending me beers, uh, some smash beers that he did. And, uh, you know, he was like, when we talk, he's talking about Sabro a lot and the coconut bomb that Sabro is. And it's interesting. And this is one of the things I, I asked uh, Brian in our previous show that did not get recorded. One of the best show we've ever done in our entire lives. Barnett. Absolute gold. Um, you know, I asked him about Sabro. That's one of their hops. And, um, you know, whether or not, you know, is it really you know, does the, how the brewer uses it make such a huge difference or is it that, you know, people are getting different lots of hops, different, you know, bales, different lots and, you know, hops, the same hop when grown on a piece of property on one end versus the other, one end gets more wind or sun or rain. The other end of the property gets less. They may harvest it, you know, uh, not the whole thing, maybe, you know, big enough that they don't get through the whole thing in one shot. So they harvest part one day and they harvest the other part another day. 
one day sitting can make a huge difference in the hops. So a lot of times they'll try and blend that together to keep it consistent, but um, that can, that can affect it too. That's why they have, uh, you know, uh, hop selection, you know, they will give you cuts from, from particular bales and particular lots because they're different. You know, it's just the way it is. It's, you know, it's like when you grow tomatoes or, you know, Travis, you grow a lot of peppers. When you grow peppers, not every pepper, even on one plant turns out exactly the same. Some are smaller, some are bigger. They'll have different flavors to them because, you know, uh, one's just maybe a little greener, you know, it budded, you know, a little, a few days later. Um, so it had less time. And, you know, a, a pepper connoisseur such as yourself is probably going like, yeah, this one's, you know, you can taste a difference. Same thing on hops. So uh, I, I find that really fascinating. And, uh, and I'm always curious with hops. Is it just the hops they got or is it the brewers? Um, I'm rambling on here because that's what I do. Uh, and when I was in uh, Sweden, uh, for the uh, conference there, um, in the evening, they had kind of like a gathering and a lot of the local brewers, they all brought their beers out and were sharing. Um, it was really cool. And I was tasting the beers and I noticed, you know, a, a real problem with the hop character on all these, uh, well, are a lot of them. Um, and people tell me, so oh, that's Citra. And I'm like, this ain't Citra. You know, this, you know, I've never tasted a beer with Citra that tastes like this. And what I found out was, you know, they were getting really crappy Citra, you know, um, maybe on some people it was the way they used it, but I think, you know, the fault was in the materials that they were getting because they had to go through back then they had to go through like a third party broker that was just buying whatever, whatever they were buying and calling it Citra and Maybe it was Citra. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's was something else. Two, Citra, two or three years old. It was extremely hard to get. Yeah. And there was no dates on the crop. It was all rebagged. And the person just said it was Citra. So who knows what they're getting. Fortunately, I was able to send like a pallet of Citra over <laughs> one time. Oh, I, should, I should reach out to them again and make sure they got enough hops. Well, and what happened after that was, um, I, I know Crosby hops, I put them in touch. And, uh, some of the others, they're all selling direct now to, you know, countries like Sweden, instead of allowing middlemen to, to do it. So, I mean, there's good middlemen, don't get me wrong, but I'm sure there's some that are not quite so scrupulous and hopefully they've gone out of business by now, but, uh, and I will say certain brewers always had, you know, great hops like, uh, uh, Thomas at, uh, Malmo brewing yep. hoppy beers were spot on tasted like, you know, they're being brewed here in California. So, um, yeah, I don't know. So it always makes me wonder, is it, is it the brewer? Is it the hops? But the way that they use this, maybe they used such an intense amount of Sabro that there's this mintiness coming through. One of the questions I had for Brian was regarding um, biotransformation on that hop because I've had two recent Nipahs with Sabro with zero coconut. Uh, it's like, where'd it go? Right. Is, is, is biotransformation perhaps taking the coconut out or transforming it to some other compound? I mean, it's supposed to be linalool and geraniol that's getting converted. Right. 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 Don't know what compounds make up the that coconut character but i i really enjoy the coconut character personally me too i think it's i think it's really cool um especially in like a tropical beer you know if you're looking for tropical fruit character like passion fruit something like that you have passion fruit and coconut like hell yeah <laughs> all right enough of my rambling i've probably uh I'm probably totally out of time now <laughs> my fault we don't get to talk to travis and john at the same time very often. Uh, Jimmy is asking about uh, reverse osmosis water and storage in stainless steel. I remember back, uh, back a while ago. Let's see. He says, hey, dudes, enjoyed the recent brewing water episode. 
See, and this is only from uh, January 2019, his email. Hmm. It's quite recent. Yeah, it is. Our, in our world of catching up on email. <laughs> John Palmer mentioned RO water being corrosive to stainless and other metals. I'm just wondering how quickly it begins to corrode them. What would be the longest time RO could be in contact with 304 or 316 without causing any problems? Are there any metals that are safe to use in contact with RO? Thanks, Jimmy in uh, Gonzales, Louisiana. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I really don't have a number. Um, the Corrosion Metals Handbook didn't have uh, any, any numbers for uh, that. But the, the, the issue with corrosion in stainless steel is usually chlorides. Usually it's chlorides in stainless steel that are the real corrosion problem. Right. In the case of reverse osmosis, you have uh, you know, no mineral in the water at all. So it's, it's acting as a very strong solvent. It's trying to, to dissolve in uh, solutes. And um, if you have a crevice or some discontinuity in your tank, uh, an interface that could set up like a local crevice or geographic feature, that can start initiating corrosion. What about Just, the air-water interface? The air-water interface. See, see corrosion in, in stainless. People leave them filled with you know, water that has, you know, uh, you know, uh, electrolyte in it that becomes, you know, acidic through, uh, bacterial action and it eats away at the, you know, at the stainless right at that line. Yeah. The water line is a definite, uh, crevice like interface. Um, so yeah, if you, it's, it's always going to happen at the, you know, at a local spot where there's the some electrochemical difference. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes that can be like a fitting on the side of the tank mm -hmm. or at the water line. Um, you know, um, but you could, can you store things like, uh, acid, uh, strong acid in, in stainless? Depending on the type of acid it is. Yeah. I mean, some acids are reducing, some acids are oxidizing. Mm -hmm. Um, you, the, uh, was it phosphoric you can store in stainless? No problem. Nitric tends to eat it away. Mm -hmm. Um, that and, one on, on breaking bad where they dissolve the body and a, yeah. a bathtub, uh, probably not in stainless. No, uh, that would have been in, in fiberglass or enamel, which would have been more, more resistant, but yeah, I think they were using sulfuric. They did that on Mythbusters too. they use like concentrated sulfuric and a little bit of hydrofluoric to really uh, dissolve it. Since I have a brewery, I've got the perfect way to dispose of bodies. I, there's a man way on the tanks for a reason, right? <laughs> not so you can crawl in there. You know, we, we're not supposed to do that, but if you're getting rid of a body, man way, you just push, push them in there. You start running some hot caustic for a while. Once you're down to bones, you switch, you switch up and start running some, some acid. And eventually you're, you're left with, you know, like a handful of teeth, you crush those up, pour them down the drain and let them go down the drain with, uh, all the waste and you're done. Interesting. <laughs> hadn't, hadn't thought that through. I'm thinking of my next business. Yeah, you, you know, know I thought that. To, it would have to be on the dark <laughs> web. I think I'd yeah. have to find the dark web first and then I'd have to post, you know, this, uh, service on the dark web. Yeah. And then I'd have to take like Bitcoin. Who wants to do that? Eh. Right. I guess, I guess that's where it falls apart. Uh, all right. So the answer is John doesn't know. Me, I'll tell you, you got about 24, 48 hours. Hmm. <laughs> well, because I'll say this. When, uh, you know, the action will start. Starts essentially immediately, but it's very slow and minor. It's the same thing, like I'm saying, when you have bacterial action and, you know, some liquid in a pot goes sour, oh, right. air-liquid interface, it's at that air-liquid interface that it just starts etching away. Um, and it, I've seen it happen in 24 hours. So I would imagine, you know, 
I would not leave it for a week. Um, it depends if it was completely filled and there was no air whatsoever. Right. You got a lot longer. It's that air water interface is the real, real problem. But I think you're fine overnight, but, um, you know, you, you may start seeing lines where you, where you let it sit for storing RO plastic. Plastic. Yeah. HDPE, yeah. my friend. Or simply add a couple teaspoons of, you know, calcium chloride, calcium sulfate, give it some mineral and it'll no longer be RO, That's but true. it'll you still could, be good for brewing. You could adjust your water to a base water that you're going to use for brewing that you always would add at least that. Mm-hmm. That's a good idea. I like that, John. You know who else I like? <laughs> um, our friends, AJ and RJ and Josh. RJ, they're RJ and Josh, yes. Out, out, in, uh, out near Reno. Um, wonderful folks at Brew Chatter. If, uh, if you got questions about brewing, I tell you, and you, and you can't wait for us to answer questions from four to 12 years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, you know, uh, I would suggest going down to Brute Chatter or give them a call, uh, you know, or email them online and uh, ask, ask your questions. Them. Smart guys know a lot about brewing and they know a lot about customer service. They're just wonderful, sweet people that uh, do uh Great things to make your hobby more enjoyable. So check them out, brewchatter.com. All right, we're going to take another short break. When we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Uh, Paul asks about uh, a heavy-duty orbital shaker dry hopping. So I don't know if you saw the video he attached to his email, but... He's got like a really large orbital shaker that's got a like five gallon carboy on it, slowly <laughs> kind of oscillating around. Um, he says, uh, research says agitation increases dry hop utilization. He says, look at this beast. I need to brew an IPA to really test this guy out. He says, uh, in parentheses, he says, I have the stout on cocoa nibs in secondary, so don't worry about the lack of cooling. I always control fermentation temperature to a T. You control it to an F or a C. I would not use T in, in, your, in your fermentation measurement. Um, well, does Paul have a good idea or, or not? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's necessary, but the, the studies on dry hopping do show that you get more effective uh, transfer of oil and acid or alpha acid to your beer with agitation. Um, and you can, I think like get the vast majority of your dry hop character in, I think it's three to eight hours Mm -hmm. with utilizing agitation of some sort. Right. So time is money, then that's good. Well, and it's, you know, you, uh, so here at Heretic, we, we do, um, about three hours. So we take the beer out of the bottom of the tank and we pump it back up to the top of the tank and we run it for about three hours after dry hopping. And, uh, it makes a huge difference. And, and the, and the value is not just time, but you're, ex- so if you look at all these studies on time and, and extraction, you will see that there are other flavors extracted mm-hmm. over seven weeks, seven days, right? Over the, the period of time that they tested, there's yeah, other right. spikes that occur. So it's not like, you know, they say, oh, no, you're getting all your, your hop character out, you know, in, you know, 12 hours or whatever they say, right? Yeah, but you're leaving behind this other stuff that you'll get if you go to seven days. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or three days or whatever it is. Take a look at the, the studies. They're pretty interesting. But um, the question is, do you want those flavors? The, the modern brewer and the modern customer wants, you know, just kind of the fruity, tropical, juicy stuff and doesn't want any of those more, you know, biting, uh, piney, you know, type of, type of character. I guess. Yeah. So um, I find it really interesting that, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of skipping the, that part of it, but one of the advantages to doing it this short run is that you're extracting the hot matter before you get to that point where those other flavors start to diffuse into the beer. So you're, you're extracting certain compounds and leaving other compounds out versus a longer time. Um, and you can over extract too. circulation, uh, can over extract. That's why they're like, you know, three hours, four hours. Yeah. I would highly recommend homebrewers try this out. I was not that, that big a fan of it, but you know, um, I ended up, uh, implementing it here at heretic. So if you, um, get, you can get yourself a nice peristaltic pump, which is sanitary and, uh, does not add oxygen if you use the right tubing, um, and just dry hop and then just start circulating it around and, and run it for, you know, maybe three hours and then stop, let it all settle. As soon as it settles, rack the beer off and leave those hops behind. Hmm. Okay. Have you ever tried anything like that, Travis? I haven't, but what if you put it in a corny keg with a modified dip tube and gave it a lot of agitation for a little while and then pulled off that shortened dip tube, something similar. Yeah, you could do that. Um, you know, just to, to pick the keg up and rock it back and forth for, you know, three hours. Thing is you, you got to leave like a bubble of, of air in there. So it kind of stirs it and not air, but you know, CO2, CO2. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. just, you know, flop it back and forth, flop it back and forth. If you don't mind doing that for three hours, um, you know, there you go. Like Volleyball. Yeah. Let it settle maybe, you know, overnight and then uh, rack the clear beer off. And, uh, that would work too. You doing a carboy, that's kind of what he's doing. Um, you know, stirring it up. Um, but I'm not sure how much it really gets it up into solution. I bet you if that was a clear beer on there, um, I think, uh, Paul, if you, uh, if you, if you do a, uh, a clearer beer and you dry hop, send us video of that to see, if the hops are really getting up in suspension or they're all just at the bottom, just my, what I'm imagining is all just sitting at the bottom, just kind of wiggling around on an orbital shaker. Um, you try a, you know, a stir plate, people have put, you know, carboys and stir plates too. Um, that's a possibility. It tends to pull down in the center and push up on the sides and that might get the, the hops going. So you could try that, mm-hmm. um, or pump it around think, uh, you know, people have asked about shakers and stir bars for, um, for as long as they've been invented in order to get beer to ferment faster and attenuate more, which we've said repeatedly is a bad idea, but on the dry hopping side, it may actually be a good idea. Uh, I think, you know, maybe give that a try. So Travis, you're gonna be my my test brewer and uh, test me out. You're gonna make your your smash beer, <clears throat> and then you're gonna make um, both, and then put them both in the corny kegs. And then one's just gonna sit there, and the other is gonna get the shaking treatment for a couple hours. Three three hours. Right. You can get the wife to do it. It's it's fun. <laughs> she she won't mind. She won't mind. All right. Uh, let's see here. Andreas uh, asks about batch barging. Says, "Hi, I'm preparing to brew my second batch ever of all grain. I want to batch barge this one, but can't get my thick head around it. He's read articles and seen videos, but doesn't understand how to calculate how much water I need for both sparges and temperature for the second sparge. Please help. Thanks. Show's great, uh, Andreas from uh, Mexico, Mexicali, uh, in Baja." Oh. I, I bet I know a book that will explain this process perfectly. <laughs> it may or may not be on its fourth edition. 
right. it's it's there. Um, yeah. And there's shows. You know, I, I think the, the simple thing on batch barging is this. Calculate it as if you were going to fly sparge the entire thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then just divide the water up into whatever batches you want to do. And Two batches, pretty, yeah. You're pretty, you're pretty close at that point. It's the same amount of water. It's just you're using a portion at a time. You may want to, if you're concerned about the temperature of your sparge dropping, well, then, you know, keep the temperature of your water up that you're going to use to sparge. Um, yeah. Should be all right. Yeah. I, I, what have I done on batch sparging? Um, I don't, I take the sparge water up to like, the strike initial strike temperature for the mash 165 something like that um not that critical uh, you know conversions happen all you're doing is rinsing and uh mm-hmm. so the one the one thing i tell people when i talk about that sparging is to uh, make sure you drain the mash thoroughly because if you only partially drain it and then fill it you lose a lot of extract um, because you you're diluting those runnings back through the whole mash and uh, extracting a portion of that. Right. So, right. So so John, I would agree with that uh, to to figure out the total volume of liquid, which is probably the most challenging part, your online version of your book, you have that calculation in there. X pounds as much. You're going to lose so much. It's a, it's roughly a half a quart per pound. Uh, that's retained. So 10 pounds, half a quart per pound, five quarts, you know, a gallon and a quarter. Um, that's how much work would be re- retained. So, you, you know, from your initial uh, mashing volume, five quarts being retained, you get the rest of it out, um, double that, you know, that amount and sparge again uh, with it. Um, it's, it's, fairly easy and and there's there's you know if you do your batch sparge and you come up a little shy on your volume then hit it with some more uh not that critical there you go um and you know i'm not really sure of the need to batch sparge if you're if you're already sparging um just pour water in on the top you know if yeah. you don't have a fancy gear, just put it like a dinner plate on top and just pour water with a pitcher and just keep uh, an inch of water on top of your, your mash as you drain it off. And that's fly sparging. Mm-hmm. It'll work just as well. And uh, you, you just keep going until you collect the amount that you need to collect. Yeah. Just make sure you draw off slow enough and you'll, you'll get great results. Yeah. I do well, try to... Uh, I do try to describe it thoroughly and how to brew. So, um, you know, read it, read that chapter and email me, you know, John, how to brew.com. If you have questions. There you go. So Andres was doing his second batch in 2019. Hopefully he's, he's finished probably, with that batch. Yeah. I think he's probably done. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully, however, the results came out, he gave another shot because it's, you're going to get better and better. Yeah. As long as your fermentation is good. All the rest of the shit you do with the word doesn't matter as much. Yeah, that's true. All right. One more short break, and we'll be back right after this. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Now, one last question uh, before we wrap this up. Uh, this is Gary. He is asking about the big ass chiller. Uh, he says, uh, I made a big ass BA Whirlpool chiller using a lot of 5 8 inch OD copper tubing, probably 10 or 20 feet worth. Well, 10 or 20 feet, that's a big difference. That's when I drop the BA chiller into my 15-gallon keg towards the end of the boil, the copper just sucks out the heat, and my boil pretty much stops. One of the things you can do about that is uh, make sure there's no water in your, your big-ass chiller. 
make sure you, you blow through it, make sure it's just air in there instead of water. And then you can set it out in the sun, uh, let it warm up before you drop it in. That's what I used to do. Um, if it's cold, you know, you can take a torch to it or something like that, or put it inside the house, keep it warm. And then when you put it in, uh, it won't uh, be quite as much of a, an energy drain on your, on your kettle, on your boil. Even if it does stop the, the boil, it's not, not that big a deal. I would push water. Let's see. Uh, I would push water from my hose to an old, smaller copper chiller that is sitting in an ice bath to the BA chiller along with the whirlpool with decent results other than killing my boil. Well, one of the things there is um, instead of using a small copper chiller sitting in there, um, what you can do is just take a, a little pond pump, a little sump pump, put that in your bucket of, uh, uh, you know, ice water, and then use that to pump your, your ice water through your big ass chiller and back to the bucket. That works really well. And then you can always just keep topping it up with ice. If you need more and more cooling. Am I reading that wrong? Or is he flushing it through flushing water through it while he's boiling still? I, I think he's putting it in the, the kettle. He's getting the, the boil stopping. And then um, I think once he's got it sanitized and he's ready to stop, he goes ahead and pumps water through it at that point. I don't think he's pumping ice water through while he's trying to boil. Good. And I tell you, with ice water, you can get your, your work down to, you know, a couple of degrees above freezing. Uh, I'm starting back my brewing after a four-year sabbatical and considering using the copper tubing in another way. What would be the pros and cons of using the big-ass chiller as an ice bath in an ice bath connected to my pump sucking the wort from my keg ball valve to the BA chiller back up to my BA whirlpool tube and repeat. So in other words, he's recirculating it through the chiller back into the kettle mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you can do that, but it's going to be less efficient than uh, just whirlpooling around the big ass chiller sitting in the, in the, and you're going to have other problems. If you're going to do this, I, instead of doing that, I would just get myself like a Therminator, you know, a Blickman plate chiller. And um, I would just use that and I'd run the wort out through the plate chiller into whatever fermenter you have. Um, you can run ice water across that too. And that'll work quite well. And um, all your wort stays nice and hot and you're not beating up your wort with a lot of pumping around. Um, I think the big ass chiller... The way to use it is make sure you blow all, any water out of it and your whirlpool chiller before you put it in your kettle. Uh, keep it warm. If you're brewing somewhere where it's snowing and freezing, keep it in the house uh, or keep it near the fire. Um, if you're brewing somewhere nice and warm, just put it in the sun um, before you, you put it in your, your kettle. Uh, and then, you know, just pump uh, ice water through it that's the simplest thing. Those sump pumps are cheap. Um, you get them off of eBay for almost nothing. Uh, I got a nice like three liter per minute pump for 11 bucks off, uh, off of eBay. They're really strong. They'll do like hundred PSI. So I have no, no trouble, uh, doing that. And then, um, then you just whirlpool the, the work around the, the chiller and it'll chill really fast. Um, the advantage to that is, you know, you get a nice cold break. You can have the cold break drop to the bottom of the, the kettle, and then you can transfer off clear wort. If you use a plate chiller like a Therminator, you're going to draw that, that protein and all that stuff, and your cold break is going to end up in your fermenter. Then you're going to need to deal with it there. I know a lot of people are keen on keeping a lot of cold break, but I think excessive cold break is a negative on your your stability so there you go that's my opinion you heard Do it you here. draw your cold break off at the uh, brewery yes it gets left behind well um uh, it uh we we tend to do a dump um it depends on the beer 
um, depends on what we're doing, but we tend to do a dump. Uh, and then uh, we'll, uh, um, yeah. So. You dump before pitching or shortly after pitching or? Well, no, uh, yeah, shortly after pitching. So the pitching occurs in line. Um, that's the easiest, easiest time to, to do your pitch. I mean, we do some beers where we'll transfer dump and then we'll transfer yeast after that. Um, I prefer the inline personally. Mm-hmm. You get better mixing and, um, you know, it's right when the word's going in. So, I mean, we do a mix of things. So probably one's not really that much more important than the other. Or, or we'd stick with one versus the other. I will say that uh, I quite enjoyed this uh, B52 brewing. Uh, hope you like Sabro beer. Oh, that was good. Uh, great, great uh, Sabro character and uh, nice minty. And uh, the package does not seem horribly oxidized like I've, I've gotten from a number of breweries. <laughs> Had I known he was drinking it today, John, I would have sent you a can also. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like it. I will finish that pint during the next show. And then I'll move on to another another beer. God knows. Oh, that sucks. I will, I don't know. Maybe I'll tell you. It was great. I'll I'll tell you that too. So <laughs> yeah, B52 Brewing. Hope you like sorrow. I can I can recommend that. I think that was actually pretty good. Pretty good indeed. 8.2%. It drinks like it's 8.2. Um, that'd be the my my most negative comment about it. I don't know. I like I like the alcohol hidden. Like it's like, oh, there's alcohol in this. But uh it's good. It's good. Well done. B52 brewing. Who's B52 brewing? Uh Travis, who are those guys? I don't know any of the brewers, I don't think. Um, which again is a good thing. Usually by the time I know it's when they don't like me anymore. Right. Oh, it's like me. Yeah, yeah. As soon as somebody <laughs> meets me, they don't like me. That's a fact. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, make sure you uh, support our fine sponsors, Blickman Engineering, uh, Brew Chatter, and uh, all the other uh, ads that you've heard inserted after the fact. <laughs> uh, make sure to support those guys because what they do is they pay money, and that money goes to... Uh, you know, uh, support the Brig Network. So uh, all the electrons that make up this podcast. All the electrons. Yes, yes. Right. Hey, how come Heritage not getting a cut of the money for all the electricity I'm using right now? I don't know. And the beer I'll drink. It's it's criminal. Uh, all right. Until then, everybody, Bruce Strong. <laughs> <laughs>